Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. And our very special guest is... Charlie Morris, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here. Hello, Tim. Hello, Paul. Hi, Charlie. Great great to have you back on. I'm really excited about talking about Bitcoin because you made a pretty uh, spectacular call last time you were on. But, um, Tim, you, you, you can kick off the proceedings. No, I'm interested that Charlie and I were having uh, a rather uh, agreeable lunch in the uh, in the West End uh, a few days ago, and it seemed an op- op- opportune time to sort of re-establish contact. So, uh, Charlie, before we before we get into the, the the weeds of things, do you want to just do a pricey of who you are, what you do? Who am I? Um, I'm. I'm. I mean, no, that's a rather challenging existential question, obviously. Yeah. I'm a bit like Tim, <laughs> just um, a little bit younger. Only only our mothers can tell us apart. <laughs> and, and you and, like and you like cryptocurrency a little more. I like cryptocurrency a little more. But other than that, you know, sort of, I think we're, we're sort of aligned in those areas. I'm basically I'm 25 years city vet, and um, most of that time at HSBC, um, I've, I've been a portfolio manager for years. And um, I was at South Bank as the editor of the Fleet Street Letter for seven years, which I left recently. Oh, right. And now I, now I run Bytree. And uh, I continue to do my work at Bytree. I write the multi-asset letter. We've got a, a Bitcoin fund, which my colleague runs. And we've also got a, a Bitcoin and gold ETF, which is just a lot of fun. It's a great product. And um, my life is Bytree, trend following, value investing, gold, Bitcoin, alternative thinking, capital preservation, high sharp ratios, that's me. I have a, a question that might sound a little strange. Uh, it's not meant to be. Uh, you say 25 plus years in the city. Do you think, how much of that was a benefit to you as an investor? Um, well, in terms of understanding the industry, a huge benefit. But in terms of actually understanding investment, um, some benefit, but mainly learning from other people who had been there a long time. And they, did, they weren't necessarily people at my firm. They, they they probably weren't at my firm actually, but it was you know being on the circuit, listening to to hundreds of pitches from various fund managers and strategists and economists over time, uh, and, and starting to understand who was you know, absolutely full of it and and who was really good. And also, sadly, you know, one in ten, one in twenty was really really good and inspiring. The but reason the reason the reason I asked the question is because I finished writing a commentary for next week, and the subject matter of that is basically. I'm sort of egging, over-egging the pudding a little about a private investor has many advantages over an institutional investor that, that aren't necessarily widely recognized. Yeah, I mean, they can be nimble. For example, they can play small caps is one very simple area. Small and mid caps, you know, you can put your 10, 20, 50 grand into a stock, um, which is obviously undervalued um, in a way that a, a big investor just can't. So, I mean, there, there's a whole, there's a whole, a bunch of stocks which you can which you can which you can trade which the big guys can't and yeah and then investment trusts you know the small investment trusts you know for example there's lots of lots of close-ended funds with assets below 500 million or what have you i mean i can't possibly recommend those because we'll just move the share price mm. and uh, you know we i recommended rank group a couple of months ago and the share price moved 15 percent in 30 minutes mm. so one has to be careful about keeping it liquid small investors can just go and do these things so so if you had a work experience person on your desk for a day what information would you what wisdom would you want to impart upon them i'd want them to get off my desk so i could do some work <laughs> <laughs> yes and we've all been there haven't we but um yeah so what, what would i wish in, in one day gosh 
I think that I just sort of show them the ropes and get them familiar. I, people are either naturally interested and curious or they're not. Mm. And I've seen so many graduates uh, come through the system um, at, at various firms. And some just, some just love it and some just see it as a job. You yeah. know, I, I did have one guy work for me who, who, who was brilliant, by the way, and I hope he doesn't, he's not listening to this, so I won't mention his name. But, you know, he, he once was saying, how do, I, how do I climb the pole? And, um, and, I, and I said, okay, so what were the, what, what, how were the football the weekend? He told me all the results. I said, how was the cricket? He told me the results. How was the Formula One? He told me all the results. And then I said, what's the FTSE? Didn't know. What's the oil price? Didn't know. What's cable? Didn't mm. know. And, Good question. And I said, you know, you've got, you've got all this sort of inherent ability to reel off statistics, but you choose them not to be financial. And so if you haven't got that natural um, curiosity about financial markets, then I don't think you're ever going to be very good at it. Because, you, just, you know, I don't think it's hard. I don't think you need to be clever. You just need to care and you just need to take the time uh, to learn and also to control your emotions, you know, to be dispassionate about it. You've got to look at an asset and, and, and just, um, you know, to take, take a view on whether it's uh, good or bad and, and not, not be attached or, or, or biased in any way, you know, just trying try to stay neutral across the board. How would you define the, the, the world from an investment perspective right now? What would you say are the main themes for someone who, let's say, might be starting out or otherwise is just sort of interested in a, in a more objective view than they might be getting from the financial media? We've been through a very strange time, Tim, as you know, these last 15 years. Um, obviously, the credit crisis wasn't much fun. But the aftermath of that, we're living in a world where the index fund did far better than it should have done. The bond market did far better than it should have done. I mean, few of us, if we are sitting on this podcast in, in, in 2009, I mean, who, who would have, who, who amongst us would have said that up until two years ago, we'd have had, you know, one of the best decades ever for mm. a 60, 40 portfolio. I don't think any of us were there. Until last year. Until last year. Yeah. And, and, and then obviously that's over. And, and now I think that to some extent, now we've got some interest rates again, um, you know, I think that, that it's somewhat back to normal. Now, obviously, there's overvaluation in certain areas, mainly the US. But I just think, you know, quite simply, you've got a bubble in the dollar and you've got a bubble in large cap US. And it's not as big as a bubble as it was, but it's still a bubble in historic terms. Mm. And it's a time to buy the rest of the world. You know, good old economy, rest of the world. It feels like 2001 too. Um, it's emerging markets. It's Europe. It's Asia. Um, it's, it's, you know, real businesses. It's price to book values, it's uh, cash flow, it's dividends, you know, good old fashioned stuff. People like you and I will clean up in this environment, Tim. To what extent do you think that the rise of woke culture um, and all, all its sort of ancillary um, characteristics is, is um, affecting financial markets? I mean, I would include ESG in that. Yeah, so last year that was a big deal. I mean, you know, I, I, I you know, was was I lucky? I don't think I was lucky. I think I, I think I got, did well last year. Um, but I went into last year, and and my big exercise at the end of twenty twenty one was to take the MSCI index fund, world index fund, and the MSCI ESG um, uh, world index fund, and and download the, uh, the constituents and invert it and say, well, what's missing? You know, well, what have they got too much of? And they had too much of Tesla and the fangs and stuff. And what have they got nothing of? And it was oil and defense and tobacco and these sorts of things. And guess what my portfolio did? It went and bought a whole load of these things, which is very easy on financial metrics because they're all cheap and generating lots of cash and that sort of thing. And um, 
you know, it presented an opportunity in the end. So the ESG thing had worked really well. People who sort of said, oh, do you know what? Everyone else is buying ESG, so I'll ride that wave. It did outperform for a couple of years. But it was a bit lucky as well because it was, you know, heavy tech and underweight old economy, mm-hmm. um, which was probably a mistake because actually tech uses a lot of electricity through these data centers and stuff. But um, we can come on to that later, perhaps. But, you know, they, they so, so people were sort of, there was a bit of luck in the COVID bandwagon. So anything tech did very, very well, which kind of made ESG look like it worked. And then people really believed the narrative. People really believed that oil was um, you know, a few years left and that was it. And then we'll just go someday thing instead to get our energy. But, um, you know, it was all nonsense, wasn't it? And, and, and it's a very important question about ESG and social responsibility and these sorts of things. But I, but I tend to think that the law is where we should start uh, not virtual signaling, you know, mm. and if you want to go and buy um, some moral um, overlay, then you tell your fund manager that's what you want. So if you, so for example, you want Islamic or Catholic or um, um, some sort of puritanical screening or Greta, Greta Thunberg screening, ask for it and your fund manager can do that for you. Well, no doubt there are products, but I don't think that the world should be, what I really don't think Tim should be happening is that when you go to a uh, wealth manager and you ask them to look after your money is they should be making moral judgments on your behalf without having asked for them. That's I think pretty criminal. Mm. So when you were last on uh, Bitcoin was trading, I believe around 60, possibly 63,000 thereabouts. And crikey, I wasn't bullish, was I? No, 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 no. You you said that it could crash to 30,000, which it obviously did, and it kept going down. So my question was, did you, when it hit 30, was that the time you were starting to reverse, or the signal that you get, that you saw that indicated it would go there, did it persist to say it would go lower? And Obviously, the the million dollar question is how did you know that that would happen? Because that was a pretty good. Call. Did you? When, when was I on? Was was I on in the in the Q one or in Q four of two thousand? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the pod and see if I can. Because it was sixty thousand twice last year, and I can't remember. Oh which no, it was this the second time. So it was it, it was, was the on the, it, it was on the way down when it yeah. was yeah. I mean, did we call it? Not really. I mean, we, we do have we do have a Bitcoin research piece, hmm. and you know, it was pretty obvious that that the prices were lofty, and we made that point. We have valuation models. Yes, that, but um, but just to cut in there, sorry, you say it is pretty obvious, but I think you were looking at perhaps transactions or something, but you didn't. I'm just curious as to how you made yeah. made well, that call. A, we've got a fair value methodology that's published hmm. in. We've got a free thing called Atomic. So on Bytree.com, there's a there's a a, a, a publication called Atomic. Um, which is written by my colleague Charlie Eris. Uh, it used to be written by me, um, and we, we've got a valuation methodology. And actually, we we were neutral. We we took we took the dial down to neutral. We weren't a bull market at that time, mm. but but I don't think we went to bear um, perhaps as we should have done. I think we did drink the Kool Aid slightly as well. But it was very obvious to us the price was very lofty compared to fundamentals. What are fundamentals in Bitcoin? Quite simply, the blockchain activity. Mm. So, so um, you know, I'm the first to tell you that Bitcoin has an intrinsic value of zero, uh, but it has a network value that's very, very high. And so, if you cut and paste the code of Bitcoin, you get something like Litecoin or, or Bitcoin SV or something like that. There are loads of copycats, and they're all worth zero because they haven't got networks. Uh, Bitcoin's a big, busy, lively network. Last year, it saw $1.5 trillion change hands. I mean, to play devil's advocate to my own position, and uh, I dare say part of yours, you could argue that gold has no intrinsic value. It, it derives its value from what, from its exchange value, from what people are willing to pay for it. 
Sure. So I, I, I call that gold's pet rock value versus its monetary value. Mm. And so if you so if you took gold out of the financial system, so, let's, so if we said to, told everyone forget about gold's investment, let's just let's just keep it as jewellery, and um, and and central banks right not banned, but everyone get bored of it, um, then you know what would it be worth? And it would be worth less than the current price. I think we'd all agree to that. So liquidity itself has a value, but you find this in the stock market too, or in the bond market. You know, U.S. Treasuries historically um, traded a little premium because they were so liquid. Likewise, stocks like Nestle, uh, Procter and Gamble, you know, they're nice and big and liquid. They always trade trade a few PE P points higher because they're deemed to be rock solid and liquid. So, so I don't think that's unique to gold. You, know, you mentioned the the U.S. Treasury market. What's your take on the, you know, the let's say the suggestion that the U.S. dollar, as the preeminent reserve global reserve currency, is either slowly or quickly losing that status? Uh, and we are reverting to some kind of more multipolar currency world. I think no one can deny that it's got less status today than it did five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. Um, and part of that's you know inability to apply sound money principles, which they're doing too little, too late now, aren't they? And um, the dollar's horrendously overvalued. They've now created enemies by weaponizing. Uh, U.S. Treasuries, you know, with with confiscation and so forth, and and it, it it's a strange old time because you know money should be neutral, shouldn't it? Money should not be politicized, and um, it's a very you know they started doing this with with you know banning this and banning that and um, KYC and we you know all these sorts of things, and it's now gone to the government level, hasn't it? And so there are plenty of countries around the world. It's sort of the world's sort of split into one world star alliance financial. Um, kind of gangs, and um, you can see how you know one of those gangs would would be very very happy uh, to lessen their their reliance on the dollar, um, and that gang's pretty big. It's not just China, you know. It's probably got India in it. It's probably got big chunks of the Middle East and and, and so forth. So there's some not not necessarily our enemies, but people with a different opinion, countries with a different opinion. They don't want to hand their reserves to to America, and I understand that. To what extent, either as an individual or as an investor, do you have any concerns or, or have concerns about the role that might be played by central bank digital currencies in the years to come? Well, I mean, good question. See, this is one of the many innovations that that, that jumps off Bitcoin. You know, we go back to the late 90s, we had Pets.com, you know, ha-ha, that was ridiculous. But actually, what followed was amazing. And the internet in today is really quite incredible. And... Um, you know, CBDCs, what are they? Well, where have they come from? Well, basically, this is this is classic regulation gone wrong. I mean, I've played around with Bitcoin for a few years now, and there was a time when it was very, very difficult to do to start transferring money to and from exchanges. Now it's basically impossible in most cases. But, but when they started doing this, um, the space, you know, had a very savage bear market in 2014 because it was so hard to interact with crypto infrastructure using your bank account. So what did crypto do? They said, well, okay, well, let's get this, let's get a token and, 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 and shove a dollar in it and send it to each other. We've now got our own dollars. We don't need um, your your bank dollars. And the, the central bank digital currency is just that. It's a stable coin, but it's controlled by um, a government. And I wrote a piece on this actually a couple of years ago. And it actually went to Sushi. Um, 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 sushi, not Sushi. Rishi? Uh, Rishi, Rishi yeah. yeah. God, that sounds terrible. Sushi. Mental blocks. Um, and, and I said, actually, actually, it went to him when he was chancellor of, via Steve Baker's office. Cool. And the the the, the 
the idea was that it's it's a, a potentially a brilliant technology. The idea of being able to send money around the world instantly and all the rest of it without um, a central counterparty. Love that. But the idea that you can use it for traceability, that you can use it for um, implementing social rules, you know, you can't buy this, you can buy that, or you can block block people or so forth. Turn, turn it off. Turn it off. And then you have the other thing of, um, you know, trusting government with technology. How embarrassing would it be if, if you had a central bank digital currency uh, and it was the pound, you know, what, what would happen to the Bank of England's credibility if if it stopped working for a technical failure or something? You know, wouldn't you much rather it was in the hands of the, of, of, um, of the banks or the tech companies on, on a private sector with, with the system overseeing it and regulating it? And, um, you know, my vision for crypto is not just some magic bean that goes up and down. Um, my vision is, is, is that the entire financial system moves this way. Every, every um, you know, gold bar, every share, every bond, every currency ends up sitting on some kind of tokenized crypto infrastructure over the coming years. I've got huge respect for Nassim Taleb, but I seem to have fallen out of love with his views of late. And one of, one of the views that I, I'm kind of trying to square the circle on was his view that um, Bitcoin's not worth anything, wouldn't it's not a hedge against inflation, and simply because the network needs to be maintained. So if you've got gold, uh, obviously it could just sit there and it needs no energy or anything to, to keep it in its state. From what I've understood about his argument, he's saying that it needs these miners to keep the system going. And I, I find that quite a strange argument because you could apply that to the banking system. You could also apply it to the Internet as a whole. So I, I, I wonder what you why think. Si why single out? Why pick on crypto? Yeah. And and why why just Bitcoin and not anything else? Oh, sorry, why just Bitcoin? So he... he tends to just say Bitcoin and not Ethereum or, or any of the others. But I suppose maybe by implication he means the others um what i'm presuming you've heard the argument what what do you think of it so coming back this, this all goes in a circle doesn't it? it comes back to the esg thing now ethereum basically crypto is bitcoin monero which is another private um which is a privacy coin Pro properly private um, yeah Properly private, which 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 runs on mining and blockchains. It's you know what we call proof of work. Should we just explain why it, why that is? Because people might be wondering why. Um, well, that that is how you get true decentralization. Yeah, if you if you want to call the Bitcoin complaints department, good luck. <laughs> um, you know, Heineken might have one hilariously from that advert back in the day. Uh, or was it Carlsberg? Forgive me, <laughs> the companies if I got the wrong one. But um, Carlsberg Forex. <laughs> There, there, there really is. There is no complaints department. There's no CEO. There's no management. There's no headquarters. Bitcoin is a, is an autonomous, um, decentralized organization, which is quite extraordinary, and that's the really exciting bit about it. And um, if you if you wanted to 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 change that and make it proof of stake, then suddenly you need a headquarters and an office and a CEO and that sort of thing. And when it comes to money, you don't really want that. You know, alternative assets. You don't really don't don't want that. You don't want someone to be in charge of gold. You want someone to be in charge of silver. Um, it really would take 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 the uh, the shine off it in quite a, quite a big way. Most crypto has gone to proof of stake, which is to accept that we'll have less um, decentralization and become more centralized in exchange for slashing our energy consumption. So you don't actually need lots of energy 
to uh, make the blockchain work, you need lots of energy to make it uh, decentralized. And there's a big difference. So Ethereum, for example, is, is basically consumes energy like Google does, um, whereas Bitcoin consumes energy um, more like heavy industry. So, so there, is a, there is a difference in that regard. But you don't need many Bitcoins. You only need one or two Bitcoin-type networks to be proof of work. The others don't need to exist. Um, on, the, on the decentralized camp, um, sorry, on the centralized camp, proof of stake, um, you can have as many. These are just innovations. These are basically modern businesses. And, and why, why um, Paul, do, do we have so many um, crypto businesses um, or crypto tokens? But they are really businesses. If you go back to the 1990s, there were loads of, loads of stocks in America and in Britain and places like that, loads of companies. And there are now fewer listed companies than there were then by, by quite a long way. So if you're a young entrepreneur, and the reason for that is basically regulation, it's very hard, cumbersome to, um, to, to, to do an IPO these days, expensive. And the ESG reporting is a nightmare, you know, this sort of thing. And, and so these young kids with a bright idea, um, they go to crypto land and their project could be something to do with software. It might be something to do with the real economy. Um, and there are all sorts of things going on. And so just think of it as a sort of uh, 21st century stock market, which has got less regulation and, and more opportunity to raise capital and, and, and financial freedom. So that, that was a wonderful explanation. What I was alluding to was that the Monero <clears throat> has got its, uh, with Bitcoin, all the transactions can be viewed. So you can look at people's wallets, you can see where transactions are going because the, the blockchain is freely available to anybody who's got a computer and decides to download it. Whereas Monero, the blockchain can't be viewed. So it's completely dark. It's, it's encrypted. So you can't see the transactions. So when it comes to a privacy coin, Monero is a preferred one. Um, so, so there are different flavors. Obviously, Bitcoin was the first one. And then as people thought of different ideas and different potential uses for the coins and the technology, they created their own and, and all the... the, the the actual code is actually available for other developers to look at and decide how they want to change it. Um, so going back to the, the, the question, what, what do you think it is about? Um, I, I suppose it's a difficult question to, to answer because I'm asking you, why do you think he doesn't like it? Um, but, but do you have a, if, if you were talking to him and he was saying, well, look, I, I think it's, it, it shouldn't work because of this. What would you, what would you say in response? Um, well, Taleb, you know, people seem to think he's important. I don't. I've I've met him, and mm -hmm. I was very unimpressed. He tried to flog um, a a a, a, um, a what do you call it a terrorist terror, terrorist fund in two thousand nine. So you know, really good thing to sell in two thousand seven. Really bad thing to sell in two thousand nine. Mm. And um, it was just full of fees. It was very cynical, and it was you know you could never see performance of this thing. It was all, you know, I'm sure a lot of mugs bought it, and he probably did very well out of it. But I, but I, you know, he's clearly he's clearly um, um, uh, quite happy to to uh, sell his soul. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> so you know, I don't really care what he thinks. Is the honest truth. But the but but if I have to answer his question, I mean, he did flip. You know, he went through a phase of being quite bullish on Bitcoin. Yeah, he's obviously he's obviously thought about this issue. I mean, yes, Bitcoin consumes energy, and if you can think of a way of having a decentralized liquid alternative asset that doesn't, then great. But it's taken over from silver. You know, the most liquid alternative asset in the world is gold at one hundred and forty-five billion dollars a day, and the number two. Um, it's Bitcoin with about $45 billion a day, three times silver. So, you know, 
that's a big deal. Yeah. And um, it's it's different. It's catching up. It has different qualities to gold. You know, on the physical side, I mean, the supply of both are, are very similar because Satoshi Nakamoto designed Bitcoin around gold. But the demand side are very different. Uh, you know, gold's got this value buyer. Half of gold is jewelry. They love a low price. You know, if you're a commercial jeweler, you, you like low prices, so you buy the dip. If you're a central bank with a long-term view, you buy the dip. Um, so you've got these these non-momentum um, value buyers that keep the volatility of gold very low and the market very liquid. Um, in Bitcoin, you know, as it grows up, we're starting to see value buyers, uh, but nothing, nothing like uh, uh, on the same level as we have in the gold market, which is why Bitcoin's more volatile. So gold's typically 15% volatility. Bitcoin's typically 55, 50% volatility, but you know, was 150. So it's on its way down. And um, uh, it's obvious to me that Bitcoin likes the good times. It's a risk on asset and gold is more of a risk off asset. These, these, things, these things have very, very low correlation uh, with one another. And so to own both gold and Bitcoin is, is, is a very powerful idea. So you've, you've got talked this, about cent- oh, sorry. sorry, go on, Paul. I was going to say, just tying that in, you you have what you describe as a bold strategy, which is Bitcoin and gold together. Yes. So yeah. So the idea is you measure the volatility as I've just described, and then you do inverse weights. So you have the same amount of risk invested in each asset at, at all times. And so at the moment, that's about we'll round numbers up for the for the sake of it. But it's basically eighty twenty, eighty percent in gold and twenty percent in Bitcoin. Uh-huh. And, and that is that is the same amount of risk. So if you had if if the two assets were equal risk, you would have fifty fifty. But because Bitcoin is obviously much riskier than your gold, then you then you have four times more gold than you have Bitcoin. And the result of that, and because they're sort of naturally um, have low correlation, then um, the volatility of gold is not very high at all. I mean, you know, what do you gentlemen think? And the S and P was down what seventeen last year, was it, or fifteen last year? What what do you think that gold um, did last year in U.S. dollars? Have a guess. Bitcoin is down sixty five. Yeah. Flat. <clears throat> well, that that was that was going to be. Uh, I, I would assume it taken a hammering. To be honest with you, I know gold's got up of of late, but uh, was but that, last year it was basically flat, wasn't it? it was, it was with fairly a big flat. Dip, big dip Q two Q three. I would have, as a guesstimate, I'd say probably down twenty. Yeah. Yeah. So it's down. So gold was down fifteen, which was too mm. better than the S and P, including dividends. Right. Right. In dollars, and that, so that's and, pretty and the, good considering. Dollar, it's pretty given given the hammering, mm. and and in two thousand and eighteen, it was actually it was down less than that the last time Bitcoin um, um, collapsed, and you know the dollar. What, what did the pound do last year? Um, I think the pound was was. Um, um, sorry, I'm just looking it up. Actually, I can't remember these things. They, they well, they it, lose it so- crashed against the dollar. <clears throat> excuse me, and then went back up again. So it went to sort of one oh four, and then then rallied heavily, and then so there was a lot of volatility, yeah, down 10. and then. <clears throat> <clears throat> and then against the euro, it was steadily rising and then came off around 118, 119, uh, just from memory. And then, so it sort of depends, really. It was, it was pretty much a, a range-bound market. But, I mean, consi- look, considering what Bitcoin had, do- had done, considering it was your core strategy, uh, that that's pretty impressive. So when things turn yeah. around and, and Bitcoin's already started a rally, so if we talk about how it's doing now, it must be looking... A, like a pretty good start to the year. It's, it's going mental. Mm. Oh, it's going mental. Yes. So, um, so last year, Bold and Sterling was down 4.8%, which is really nothing considering the hammering that Bitcoin took. And, um, and this year to date, 
uh, bold in GBP is up eight, but actually in dollars it's up nine point nine. Sorry, ten point two up ten point two in dollars. Now is is bold is bold just uh, Bitcoin and gold, or do is it the sort of umbrella term for all the other crypto that you trade underneath it? No, it's just it's just Bitcoin and gold. Okay, so the, and, and, and yeah, the reason is because these are the two these are the liquid alternative assets. Everything else is a distraction. If I put silver in, I increase the volatility and reduce the liquidity. If I put Ethereum in, same, I increase the the um, uh, the volatility and reduce the liquidity. And also, I can't be sure. Um, that Ethereum is a winner. It probably is. I mean, it's a ninety-nine percent chance. Well, it's it's correlated, to, though. So, to, it's correlated, sure. Yeah, but yeah, this this is supposed this is supposed to be um, a proper allocation. So here's the theory, right? You've got a sixty forty portfolio. How do you improve it with alternative assets? Tim, you're going to love this. <laughs> Here we go. And so we go to World Gold Council, Council's website. Obviously, they like selling gold, so they're going to be bullish gold. But but fair enough, they're all bullish gold. So they're going to tell you to have 8% in a 60-40, which improves the sharp ratio for the long term. And I think we none of us would disagree with that. And um, I'm going to fund it from bonds. Um, so I've now got uh, 60 in equities, uh, 32 in bonds, and 8 in gold. And then I've done my research on bold which suggests that actually it enhances gold um, on a risk-adjusted basis and all the rest of it to have 2% Bitcoin alongside and rebalance on a regular basis. And I'm going to fund that from equity. So I'm now going to be 2% um, in Bitcoin, 58 in equities, 32 in bonds, and 8 in gold. And if you wanted to go a stage further and say, okay, I'll, I'll also own crypto as in Ethereum and the other stuff, then then you would have a small weight of around 1% or 2% and you'd fund it from equities. So that, that is how I'd frame the alternative assets of, of digital and, and and gold and so forth within a 60-40, putting my academic hat on, not my current tactical view. So you mentioned central banks earlier and also the, the word credibility snuck into the, the, the conversation. Um, pop quiz, how much money did the Swiss National Bank, Switzerland's uh, central bank, lose last year in dollars? Lots, lots. Uh, $143 billion. Is that it? I thought it'd be loads more. But well, it, it, how did it, they? What? What? They? How did they lose that? What were they? I think. They doing? I think basically because they had a big portfolio of Fang Fang stocks, which obviously collapsed last year. But the, the it raises a question about the whole. What were the they doing? Investing central bank. But this is the whole point. So the, the the thing that's always struck me, I think, and we were talking about this with a client yesterday, and I think Killian, my my colleague, was saying that actually, you can. I think the Swiss National Bank is actually listed business, so you can actually buy shares in it if you're dumb enough to do that. Oh, but the okay. the issue the issue is that you know. If you, if you, if anybody on this call or listening to this call wants to buy, let's say Apple stock, we have to work, and then we can transfer the earnings from work into buying Apple stock. Swiss National Bank just prints money out of thin air and buys it. Well, that's what how I was going. Well, I was going to say, how is, when, that, how is that a valid, a valid what, investment in twenty uh, investment? How is that more to the point a moral investment um, strategy in twenty twenty three? It's it's complete nonsense. When bond yields were negative and they could effectively pay back less than they're actually printing it and then then they're going to invest it in the, the american stock market or where, wherever it, it was clear as to why things were going up i mean how, how much would you like to print if you could access negative interest rates i mean it would be trillions wouldn't it you just do as much as you can at that time but obviously the tide turned and they didn't spot it so but what, what i'd caught. say is this this is touches on a, a much broader question which is why do we trust the big state for anything and I'd say the, the experience of the last three years and, and counting, I mean, obviously, it's specifically been COVID-related since 2020, but 
the experience of the big state is that it, it basically is like the anti-Midas. It just destroys value of everything it touches. Yeah, it, and, I, and I'm just stunned that the sort of the perception of government being everybody's savior isn't more more widely criticized. I, I guess this is also a triumph of sort of woke culture that we've somehow got sucked into this perception that you know, the, 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 the government is good and more government is better. But that 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 completely is at odds with our experience, well, my experience of a lifetime. It's a bull market certainly experience. The last, certainly the last few years. I think it's a bull market experience sentiment. And as long as the the man in the streets portfolio is is going up and obviously we're seeing a lot of people strike at the moment because inflation is too high and their wages are being effectively cut and so that's the effect that we're seeing across certainly the uk i'm not sure about why, why is inflation why is inflation too high well, yeah well yeah exactly I would say because central banks have printed too much money yeah yeah look at look at what they did in response to the pandemic and and if anyone so why, why they never really seem to print a, a chart of the amount of borrowing that they've got and and the amount of bonds that they printed to you know in the newspapers so people don't know the trillions that they they've printed in order just to pay out stuff just because they wanted to to enact a policy on on a whim effectively so the the, the point i'm sort of edging towards uh, gently is why why on earth is anybody allowed the current central banking system to persist it's a, it's a clown it's a clown show yeah I mean, it's um i i guess the alternative the, the the big alternative to to money if you look at the history of money which is fascinating and we're gonna have rob Dix on at some point um this year he's written a book uh called the price of money and he, he goes through the history right from the beginning fills all the gaps that i had in it and it was very well written book so um we got that to look forward to uh, it, the way he explains it and the way we look at how money developed we, we are at a point today when as you've said many times tim and as charlie's fully aware of there was a point in the 70s when gold was no longer backing the us dollar and that was a big problem but the system has managed to carry on and at some point it's not going to be able to carry on because people are going to say there's either an alternative, which could be Bitcoin or, or some other currency or, or some other system, um, or inflation just gets out of control and people lose complete faith in it. But either way, um, Bitcoin has come in as a way of trying, I think, to keep the government honest. And that is the big change that we're seeing at the moment. And potentially, if they bring in a... a in my view, if they bring in a um, another currency, a central bank digital currency, and they try to expect people to use it, that could be a way of forcing people into other alternative assets. So they've got to be careful how they implement that because you could effectively destroy your own currency. Now, there was a time when regional banks in America would print their own currencies. There was a time in the UK where you'd have northern banks printing their... Each bank would be printing their own money and you'd have to work out whether this money was fake or or that you'd have all sorts of problems um associated with it because everything dealt was dealt with in a very regional way because you'd have to go back to that bank to exchange it and to deposit it and obviously that's clearly a problem that needed one single currency within the UK and within America to operate so you can see how um it wasn't done for malicious reasons it was done for a reason of design and, and convenience and development and and so the problem with government and charlie i'd be interested in, in your obviously your view on this is what 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 can one do about the problems that central banks or governments create there's 
in my view, there's probably not a lot until the system actually starts to creak and you've got to protect yourself. You just stolen my thunder. So just before Charlie answers, <laughs> I just want to I just want to quote one of my spiritual leaders in this topic, which is Ludwig von Mises. Quote, there is no means of avoiding the final collapse of a boom brought about by credit expansion. The alternative is only whether the crisis should come sooner as a result of voluntary abandonment of further credit expansion or later as a final and total catastrophe of the currency system involved. Well, we're not going to get any abandonment of credit creation, so I think the, the future seems to be abundantly clear. Yeah, right. it's, 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 it's alternative assets, isn't it? Hard assets, alternative assets, call them what you will. Um, real, real assets. Real assets. I mean, there was this, and you own the gang, you know, you don't worry about well, the Taleb thinks Bitcoin's not very good. You just own lots of them. And, uh, and and that, you know, includes commodities and land and all sorts of things. Um, but, I, you know, I am reminded that that I think, was it, am I right to say 48 hours before the Reichmark in Germany in 1922 or 24, whichever it was, um, if you sold your gold, if you, if you held on to your gold right up until the announcement of the new system, um, you lost two thirds of your real value instantly. So the people that absolutely won sold their gold two days before the announcement. Have you heard that, Tim? No, oh, that's new to me. But how would that be? Because what the oh, because of the the the, the new currency was implemented. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the gold fell by two thirds in the new currency instantaneously. Yeah, but that w- wasn't that with hyperinflation. So that that two thirds sure. could still have been. No, that was a real. So that's a real outcome. So the real outcome was the people that absolutely cleaned up, which is probably no one got it right, was you had to sell two days before the announcement. And in those final two days, it was it was a two-thirds wipeout of real value. But that's really interesting. So what were you? What would you have sold into? Because you would have sold into the old currency if they were switching into a new one, and then you would have had a load of effectively, potentially worthless old currency. I'd have to, yeah. I'd have to look at that. I have, to, I have to wheel that book, to, that, that book out. Mm. But it was pretty interesting that this, well, I think the point is that the speculators had overdone it. Mm. And so you had a premium to, to where you should have been. Oh, right. Uh, that makes sense. Um, on, yeah. on the local gold price. And, and so that premium just, just went up in smoke. Talking, so, yeah. Yeah. So, but I, was, but I was actually going back to a point earlier when, when Tim said, how much money do you think the Swiss National Bank lost in equities? And, um, you know, I didn't mean to be flippant, but it was surely they lost a whole load more in bonds. Mm. <laughs> these these central banks lost so much money in bonds. And well, this is this is there's a bond thing, bond uh, example that we continue to use because it's just so staggering that there's a 50-year inflation-linked gilt that uh, UK government bond that between January and September of last year contrived to lose 85% of its value. Yeah, and, a and government, that was the time a government when- bond. Yeah, that was a time when the government, uh, and, you know, they were banning Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff. And so I was making jokes about that. The volatility of that particular guilt, the 73 guilt, was um, was three times Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. that That's the other thing, actually, I was going to ask you about the when it comes to sort of new people who come into the markets, and especially in the crypto space. The amount of volatility that we see is out of order it's 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 magnitudes more than we normally see in the broader market so we're seeing a huge amount of volatility but when they come in this is they get used to it they expect this these massive swings and when you're when you're running a trend following fund i guess that's that's perfect because you you want this sort of volatility you've got your bold strategy do is the trend following fund 
just what you apply to the bold strategy or do you run um, a multi crypto asset trend following fund in, 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 in the other assets or any other assets? So trend following, we don't actually have a trend following fund. So I might've misheard, you might've okay. oh, no, I probably misheard it. Sorry. So on Bytree, we publish my work, the multi-asset letter, which is the old Fleet Street letter, basically the same thing, my whiskey portfolio portfolios. We also have we also have Robin Griffiths and Rash Power Seven do the uh, adaptive asset allocation report. And that is trend following. That's uh, trend following uh, the leading things in ETFs, and they publish that each month. Oh, so that's not actually traded, it's just printed. Is it's it printed. Just, yeah. I see. Oh no, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And and um is there a secret source in that or is that just uh they, they have a, they have a model yeah and uh, that model looks for the strongest trends so so trend following is one of those things where it's a scary scary strategy to implement properly you need a thick skin you need belief um and uh, and you need to just do it and it's quite hard for most people to do it which is why so many of these things have become systematic where the computer does the trading rather than the human but the idea is that if you own the strongest trends and keep keep refreshing your portfolio on a regular basis into the strongest trends you end up with with what they call right fat tails you know fat tails on the right side or a skew or or these sorts of words where you make loads of money to the upside and um and, and avoid the nasty losses so if you think about stocks like enron which went to zero quickly or um you know one of these many 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 frauds over time um if you're a trend follower then you're never going to own those stocks because these things, you might be short, of course, if we're doing shorting as well, but in this case, we're just going to keep it long only. You're never going to own these things that are going down and going to zero. You're only going to own things that are either um, going up or going sideways or going down a bit because you bought it and, it, and it, the, the trend stopped and reversed. But you're never going to be in these things that go to zero. Does it go short and, and as you, well? Sorry? Does it go short as well? Uh, this one doesn't. I mean, no. I think he does. He does occasionally buy one of these inverse ETFs, but right. I'm, I'm not very happy about that actually. Oh, I think really? I think they're rubbish. The products are rubbish. Oh, because they don't really move with them. I've seen some where they don't actually move properly with the market. Correct. Yeah, 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 that, yeah. I'm not anti-short selling. I don't think. I don't think. I don't think. I think 99% of investors should not go near short selling. But I have no issue with the 1% who know what they're doing doing it. Um, but these pro these particular products, they're minus one percent on a daily basis, which is different from being short a, an amount of value over a period of time. And um, and if you don't understand that, you definitely should not be buying them. You should look, you should figure out what that means. There's a thing called path dependency. But anyway, but the bottom line is, if you do long only trend following, and and if things are going down, just sit in cash and wait. That's fine. Um, then then you end up owning all the good stuff over time. It is a choppy strategy. Sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes you'll be in trends that stop and reverse instantly, particularly in conditions like like today's. Um, but every now and then, you know, you'll be into oil and it will go up five times, or you'll be into silver and it will go up three times, or or whatever. But the bottom line is, there's, there's no perfect trading strategy, so you just need to find something that, w that that works more often than it doesn't. Yeah, and keep doing it. Yeah, correct, Tim. So, do you have any strong uh, views as to where the markets will go from here, given that it's January and everyone likes to do their predictions for the year? Yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm reasonably upbeat. Last year I was quite bearish, and um, I don't mind buying cheap stocks that no one else owns. So even if I'm bearish, it really doesn't bother me to own something that's a bit out of favour and it's undervalued and all that kind of stuff. Um, but last year I was pretty pretty 
pretty bearish. But then a lot's changed since last year. You know, inflation's coming down slightly, um, and the bond market's found a floor, and rates are going to slow down, and Russia's um, seemingly losing its its grip on the energy prices, and um, and China's back in, which means our recession won't be quite as bad as we thought it would be. And so, you know, if it was scary as hell back in August, September time, it's less scary now. And there are parts of the market that went down a hell of a long way. UK mid caps, for example, and they're too low. UK UK commercial property REITs. You know, in two thousand and seven, the average REIT had about uh, seventy or eighty percent leverage. Uh, today, it's more like fifteen, and you know they all went down by fifty percent in the pensions debacle. You know, when when the pensions were dumping all the bonds and stuff, the UK REITs just just went to half book pretty much. And so, when you've already forecast a fifty percent crash, um, you know what what's the fear? So I think that there are things to do, plenty of things to do, plenty of undervalued things, particularly outside of the US. Um, so I've been buying, you know, dividend paying old school, old economy things in Europe and in the UK and Asia and emerging markets. So that's really my, 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 my place. And these, these things haven't gone up in 15 years. And what, do you have, what, what is your take on not so much the crypto side of things, but gotten gold and silver now, the, the old traditional stuff? Yeah, so I mean, we own gold and silver in the portfolios, but I will I will admit that in one of our portfolios, in Soda, which is our lower risk portfolio, um, the volatility is about six and a half, and um, on average over time, and, and and we did reduce our gold position and buy tips in the last month or two, and that's because, as you said earlier, tips collapsed. So tips are now paying a one and a half percent or two percent real yield, uh, depending where you are on the curve, and and that's that's pretty healthy. You have to go back to pre-08 to, to see that kind of real yield being paid. And golden tips are highly correlated historically. Mm. And um, at the beginning of last year, gold was underpriced compared to tips. And at the end of the year, it was the other way around. You know, mm. uh, gold was, was overpriced relative to tips. And there are two reasons. You know, one, one is that treasuries have been weaponized. No one wants them. And that argument again. So maybe there's lower demand for, for tips, which is why they'd be cheaper than they should be, and therefore, as a result, understating what inflation would be. So we tend to look at tips and say, ah, the implied rate of inflation, courtesy of tips, is 2.5% or what have you, and we believe it. But it could just be that they're underpriced because no one wants them, and so they're understating inflation. But in any event, if they are understating inflation, then inflation will still be here, and they'll have to reprice. And so you know, I think that it is an opportunity to, to buy uh, cheap tips against gold as, as, as a tactical move. Um, but I wouldn't do that with all the gold. We've kept some gold. Silver, I'm a bit more suspicious of because I think that we're in a market where you do want to own the most liquid assets. And, um, you know, you do need proper risk on conditions for silver to move. But then one can't, one can't you know, you, you can't ignore the fact that we're in some sort of commodity bull market. Mm -hmm. It's not a clear one because the trends are, you know, most of the moving averages and the 200 moving averages are negatively sloping on things like copper and oil and so forth. But, but it they, could they, be that gold and silver actually do, are the leading players in the commodity. Uh, could or, be, could be. I mean, I look at the gold, gold oil ratio is quite fun and the sort of copper gold and these sorts of things. I'm sure you do too. And and all of these, they're, they're all a bit confused. But but it's basically telling you that yeah, commodities definitely should be a part of your of, of your allocation um, these these next few years. But I think that we we got to a point last year where it was all a bit too good to be true, you know, with the the Putin thing and the and the LNG and the um, you know all the metals and the food. Things just went too far too soon. And 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 commodities commodity pool markets are never smooth affairs. They're always choppy. Do you have any strong views about geopolitics specifically in relation to China? 
Well, I think China's probably less scary than than we think. Um, but then again, I did say that about Russia. I was completely wrong about Russia last last February. But you know, I listen to sensible people in China, and they say um, that they say that you know the acts of self interest. They're just not going to invade Taiwan anytime soon. Um, and the Taiwanese believe that that the China wouldn't bomb their factories, their microchip chat factories, because it would just be pointless. Um, and and I, I you know I I I think that Xi probably would love to invade Taiwan, but one gets the impression he's been sidelined a little bit, and he's probably less powerful than he was a few months ago, which is probably a good thing. Um, I want to see more Chinese people travel around the world and um, and make that country uh, more normal and um, and less scary. Mm. So you know, but I think China's a massive part of the world. Their trade surplus is some horrendous amount of world GDP. Um, like one or two percent or something. I mean, it's just so big, and uh, you know, as a result, their currency is probably undervalued. Um, and if they can revalue it, then then that's probably um, um, inflationary for the world. And if they see it collapse, then that's disinflationary for the world. So you know, if they do the right thing, then um, you know, this inflation will will be um, a little bit higher. They'll balance the books. Their trade deficit will come down. Their trade surplus will come down. And uh, and the numbers should start to balance more evenly around the world, but you know, will they? I don't know. But on the scary side of China, um, I think they're slightly less scary than we than we like to think they are. Do you do we th- do you think we're in a, a bear market now for for, for fangs, the Nasdaq? Yes, yes. and and the, and the what was the killer thing there the other day? I think I, t- I did a chart of um, what I call it. I called it AppSoft, Apple and Microsoft combined market cap. You know, went above FTSE all share um, last year, I think, or the year before. Because the, the, te- the price technicals for a lot of these companies do look grisly, don't you think, uh, Paul? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it looks like tech's going to underperform, and um, yeah, the, the charts have not looked good for a while. Tesla made a massive reversal, head and shoulders reversal pattern, and. It's yeah, it's, it's it's all looking very corrective. We'll see how far, but the Dow the Dow's really outperforming. I have to say, I mean that. Well, it really a- it really really feels like two thousand two thousand and one, sort of out with the old. Uh, sorry, out with the new, back in with the old. What's interesting about that is that's actually predicted by was predicted by Akil Patel, who was on um, last year, saying that you heard to, it here first. <laughs> yeah, he's. Uh, his cycle analysis was saying that in this next phase, you will see underperformance from tech and outperformance by core um, core businesses. So that it's really interesting that that's what we're kind of positioning towards right now. But there was obviously the pandemic boom that benefited so many technology stocks, and that premium has come off at uh, quite a clip. And so it's uh, it's 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 really interesting that also Charlie's bullish because that that does look like how things are going to pan out over the course of this year, perhaps a bumpy start. Um, but it, it is it is a mixed market, so you've got to be in the right space. Uh, it's not like a shut your eyes and just buy anything at the moment. Um, so, but there's obviously risk on trades coming back in because we've seen such a strong move up in, in cryptocurrencies. What was interesting about the, the move in Bitcoin and, and, and the other uh, products was it came just after the SBF announcement and those markets didn't go down very much and that was potentially an indication that we'd seen the low was that your reading of it uh, charlie what what's your, what was your opinion on the sbf stuff 
Um, I, God, it was just shocking, wasn't it, last year? There were just so many of these events and these terrible people. And then you, you listen to, I mean, if you, if you want to, um, to, to see your jaw drop, go and listen to the Hugh Hendry podcast, uh, Acid Capitalist, with the guy from Three Arrows. Okay. And it was a couple of months ago. Unbelievable! Picking up the phone and suddenly a billion dollars just rocks up, and then another. They're, they're back raising money again, aren't they? Those guys. Oh, and you just go, how? How did this happen? How? Where does all this money come from? And and it's just extraordinary. There, there was, you know, I thought I knew a bit about what was going on, and I clearly knew nothing because there was another gang who were just up to all sorts of no good. And these people, I mean, I just don't understand, um, you know, how they can be so. Uh, so crazy but it all comes back to the grayscale premium as far as i can work out you know you had this situation where the regulator um, had banned bitcoin etfs in america and obviously they banned them in britain as well and um america matters more obviously and so the grayscale bitcoin investment trust goes to a whopping great big premium you know sort of average of 50 percent or so for several years so people are putting all this money into that and then that premium structurally creates all sorts of uh, spreads around the crypto market and so there's a whole there's a whole lending and borrowing scene on the back of it but it all seems to start and originate from 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 there and um and it's quite extraordinary and then of course that premium goes to a discount quite spectacularly so 50% at one point last year, and, um, uh, and so the whole thing blows up. So I think that it's quite interesting to, again, find the root cause of, of, of all the craziness. Um, and, and, yeah, guess what? Regulators again. Regulators who ban products that, you know, frankly would have protected investors because and probably created less of, um, um, you know, sort of crazy, cra crazy situation. If um, if people were, were freer to go and do what they want to do, instead they sort of force people to go and deal with all these exchanges, make it difficult with their bank and so on, where they could just legalize the crypto ETF, which is what they have done in Germany, France, Netherlands, and Switzerland, and Sweden, and Brazil, and Australia, and Hong Kong, and Singapore, and Canada, and um, probably some others too. That leads very nicely into what will be my media paper. We don't have to obviously stop here, but. My my one is the um, which I'd be interested in your again your view on is the uh, the Netflix series about Bernie Madoff. So it's Madoff the monster of Wall Street, which I, I obviously we know about what happened and and we we lived through it as well, didn't we? But actually watching the documentary, it was uh, it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And there's certain things talking about regulation and the frustration that we we can definitely hear about that when you when you watch it you just see quite how um how they kind of skew things to their own advantage i don't want to give anything away because it's i learned some stuff that i i found quite troubling about how they dealt with the fund at the end and i, I didn't know i didn't know they had done this particular thing but um that that is that's going to be my media pick but the extraordinary thing about that, it was a really good good series. Oh, did you um, see it? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. But he never put a trade on. Yeah. I had no idea. I, 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 like everyone else, assumed he started off honest and then and then bought it up and tried to cover up his tracks, you know, Nick Neeson style. Yes. Um, but no, he, it was a scam from day one. Yeah. And I don't understand why you do that when you've got a successful security business upstairs. Well, exactly. Yeah, it, was a bro it was a brokerage firm, wasn't it, in, yeah. in essence? And then this, this side, side hustle was basically just pure fraud. It was the he pioneered the Nasdaq. I mean, he had the technology. He yeah, it, was, it was it was like wow, and because obviously he was on the board of the Nasdaq, and you were like, how could he was chairman? I think at one point, and 
possibly i can't remember whether he was or not but he's definitely on the board and i was like how could he have been on the board i just don't get it but then you see actually well yeah he he founded and, and set up the technology that was the nasdaq so you could see why but again I, that was the question i had what he had clearly a successful business he was clearly ahead of the curve he didn't need to do any of this other stuff and and protected his sons from it and they were i think one of the most powerful lines was when the the uh the securities uh commission was saying to the the sons you know how did how didn't you know and they were like well how didn't you know especially when you had people tipping them off left right and center well you had one guy whose name escapes me who warned the sec i think on five or possibly six separate occasions that's and of all course they it. did nothing yes in 2000 2001 well that was that was what shocked me even more it's like he he was a very smart guy a mathematician saying giving all the red flags and he was he wouldn't let go he was he kept telling them you've got to look into this you just you, you know this is clearly a fraud and they they did nothing and it was just incredible but it was also how they dealt with the funds you know correcting the mistakes at the end and um i, I don't want to put any spoilers for it i don't know whether for other people it is a spoiler but you know i i the, how the fun was dealt with at the end i thought was 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 totally awful it was it was a very very strange situation and um you know i think that he had uh, uh, obviously a very different moral compass to to what we did but i think it probably you know go, goes back to the sort of similar experience to maxwell in his youth when you know he sort of felt lucky to be alive and and saw capitalism as fair game, you know, economic warfare. And um, there's probably something in that. Yeah. So um, so you're quite bullish on the markets. I, one final question I wanted to ask about was, you have got a good, very good handle on energy. It seems on pretty much everything at the moment, but on, on energy. And um, a product that hasn't been talked about for quite some time is uranium. Um, what, yeah. what what do you what's your opinion on on uranium and are you invested in it in any way no no i mean i, I do like to keep things liquid and you're probably referring to yellow cake uh um, i wasn't i was just looking at the price of uranium um chart but not not at no particular product yeah i mean look i love nuclear power and i think it's it's the answer and all the rest of it but i just i just don't see i like liquid liquid assets you know that's one of the things particularly when you've got quite a large readership it's very, very important that everything you do is liquid, and so um, you know, unless unless something is, then I then I then I won't really touch it. But yeah, am I am I bullish on nuclear fission? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm a nuclear child. You know, my father was a civil engineer and built three nuclear power stations. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. So um, I was I was born in Hartlepool for my sins. Not that we come from Hartlepool, but because Dad was building Hartlepool A in 1970. So there you go, and. Um, so if you don't like nuclear fa nuclear power in my family, then then you then you um, you'll probably be uh, put up for adoption. I think <laughs> after the birth of a new superhero, nuclear boy. <laughs> <laughs> but if I, I hope trade I market, do I get a media pick? Of course That's you do. Thing. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So look, I just I just I'm about three years behind everyone else, but I just signed up to Apple TV, and um, and and so I watched that thing, that film with Tom Hanks in it about the about the naval convoy and the submarines. Oh. It was really good. Oh, and, Captain Phillips, is it? Or no? Yeah. Was it? No, no. no it's, it's more an escort thing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I've not seen it. He he, he escorts this uh, anti-theory destroyer, basically looking, you know, trying to get rid of uh, U-boats. Oh, is it? Is that just for Apple TV? 
Is it? On yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've not not seen that. And then the other thing I've just started watching is Ted Lasso. Yeah, everyone talks about that. I started it's watching it and I didn't like it, so I'd have to maybe oh, stick with it. It's brilliant. Is it? I mean, it depends. If, if you if you like, I mean, every now and then I, I find, you know, working in markets and stuff, you know, it's, it can be torturous at times. And if you just want something really happy to cheer you up, yeah, it's just one of those series. Um, the other one is it's on Netflix, Somebody Feed Phil with Rose, Phil Rosenthal, who goes around cities um, um, eating all the food around the world. It's absolutely hilarious. Oh, brilliant. He's the, he's the guy behind um, Everybody Loves Raymond. Ah. Um, um, so, you know, some of these sort of feel-good things I, I occasionally like to watch. Um, although, you know, if, you, if, you, if, you, if it was a Saturday afternoon and, and I was a bit tired, you know, I, I would say, where eagles dare, guns of Navarone, those sorts of things every time. Brilliant. Tim? I'm going to follow in the uh, steps of your Madoff thing, and I'm going to go with um, a Jack Black film that, for some reason, although it was made in 2017, has only just surfaced on Netflix, unless I haven't been paying attention. It's called The Polka King, oh. and it's apparently based on a true story. So the Pennsylvania polka legend, Jan Luan, is, um, he's got a sort of polka business, but it's it's not commercially successful. So he, he starts basically Madoffing his own, his own sort of friends and family and stuff. And if if you ever want an example of a film that exists and is driven purely by the charisma of its leading man, Jack Black is sensational. I like this. Jack Black a lot. Jack Black is just, is just something to him. And yeah, I'd say this is the best thing he's done since School of Rock. And oh, School wow. of Rock is School of Rock is epic. But it's exactly the same kind of performance. It's just someone who refuses to you just cannot be beaten down by life or reality. It's just and it's, it's apparently a true story. I'm just looking at the the poster for it now on IMDb, and it's Jack Black, the Polka King, the greatest scandal in polka history. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, well, I thought that was funny anyway. But this, I, I was talking about it with my um, with uh, my fiance after we saw it, and if you remember uh, Home Alone, yes, the mum on the way back gets a lift yes. with a John polka Candy? king played by uh, John Candy. And I do wonder whether this that role was based on Jan Luan. Either way, it's called Jack, it's Jack Black, the Polka King, and I, I just thought it was tremendous, tremendous fun, based allegedly on a true story. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Charlie, I'm looking at your Bite Tree website, which is absolutely fantastic. We're gonna have to sign up, and um, there's all sorts of information on here. Um, you know, real time. Bitcoin oh, prices and stuff. You you like a chart? Yes, Paul. I do. I love charts. Right, go go to Byte Trend. Have a look at Byte Trend. If you click on Terminal top right. Oh yeah. And go. To, uh, we can take this offline if you want, but you're going to love Byte Trend. Oh my god, yeah. There's all sorts of data. I'm getting very excited. Wow, look at this. Super. Do you like, um, ETH, do you, do you like crypto ETFs or commodities? What do you, which one I, do you like? Or everything. I look at everything. So okay, well, so look at I mean, commodity is nice and simple. Can you can you find that? Yeah, yeah, I'm on bite. I'm yeah. on bite trend at the moment. Yeah, I okay. sense the I sense the pod is deteriorating rapidly, descending rapidly <laughs> into data hard, data poor. I know this is this is data poor. <laughs> Sorry, this is quite geeky. This but is look, this is amazing. Go, this is amazing. If you go to commodities, you get the scores. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You yeah. Drift by ETS. Got it. And and you can do it relative, um, and you can do breadth and stuff. So it's it's all a lot of fun. No, that's, this is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Right, I'm going to be uh, checking this out. So, let's do, so who, let's who, do a follow-up. Why don't I do a follow-up with you? Because you're a proper technical analyst. Yeah. So why don't we do a follow-up and, 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 and you come on a Bytree podcast and we'll just talk about Bytrend. 
Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be amazing. Yeah, I'd really love that. that. Right. Yeah, fantastic. So, um, so that's Bite Tree B Y T E Tree dot com, and your Twitter handle is at Atlas Pulse. Could I'm, I'm Atlas just Pulse, yeah. yeah. What what's what's the story behind that? Um, well, do you know Jason Cousins of Glint? I I don't know. Tim, do you know the Glint sort of gold thing? And um, I've known Jason for years, and I was working at HSBC, and and I said I wanted to start writing about gold, but I wasn't allowed to because I was working at HSBC, and they'd done a media blackout um, after the crisis and stuff. So once I, I used to do lots of media, and then I wasn't allowed to do any, and so I created a pseudonym, and and it was actually um, his his um, economist's wife who came up with it, who was in marketing, and um, and said, so why don't you use Atlas Pulse? She found two words that, that went together. And, um, and I said, fine. I didn't really think much of it. And it sort of stuck. Brilliant. Well, not, that... sure if, not sure if I like it very much, but so that's how, that's why it exists. It was um, a pseudonym that so, was required at the time. So for people who want to find you and maybe ask you questions and, and stuff, w- would that be the best way or, or LinkedIn? Or how, how do you like people to contact you? Bytree.com, Atlas Pulse, Charlie Morris, LinkedIn. Um, yeah, uh, whatever you want to do. And, um, and I, I, I won't bite and I'm usually pretty polite and receptive so um, yeah love to hear from you fantastic well thank you so much it's just been such a pleasure to have you on the show really enjoyable and very informative so look forward to having you back thank you gentlemen and good luck this year with your trading it's going to be a let's, tough one let's be careful out there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks again bye now bye bye thanks Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.